I will say that's probably one of the biggest challenges for um, government as a whole is that inability to really look at that longer year projection. And some of that is because you are, you know, you're, you're dealing with folks that are on a cycle. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are sponsored, as always, by the Government Finance Officers Association, Odyssey Advisors, Muni Pro, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlow, joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fantasy football commissioner, baseball mom, equestrian, and someone who wears many, many other hats, in addition to being a bona fide fiscal policy expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, the uh, our, our league's fantasy football draft is, is later this week, and I have done zero prep, which is part of the course these days. <laughs> um, which means you'll be more successful than you've ever been. Probably. I mean, that tends to be how it works. Uh, the less I pay attention, the better I do. I should have learned that a while ago. Yes, as a as a Packer fan, uh, we are we're trying to make sense of a world without Aaron Rodgers, but I know that for many fantasy teams, creates all sorts of interesting opportunities. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, shakes out for the first part of the season. Well, we are uh, continuing our conversation today, our series of conversations, I should say, with state treasurers, and we're fortunate to have uh, Delaware treasurer Colleen Davis with us, talking about the goings on in the first state, as Delaware is known. And you know, there's one of the things that that has been interesting as we've talked to state treasurers is. We learn about all the different kinds of things that treasurers are involved in that we may or may not have been aware of. When we think of the office, we typically think of it as sort of a back office function. They're, they're paying bills, they're borrowing money, they're dealing with unclaimed property, a lot of things that we may or may not hear about. But as has been, I think, the case over the last several years, we've seen treasurers get much more actively involved in a lot of really thorny policy problems, particularly around trying to create opportunities for segments of state populations that have often uh, not been invested in, in in quite the same way. That seems to have been uh, the case here. And your work in this over the years, you know, we think about treasurers getting involved in, in some of these interesting financial issues that go way beyond just what state government is doing with its own money. What comes to mind? It's really interesting. So, I mean, treasurers um, have a number of programs that they that they administer and manage. Um, I think probably the most well-known being college savings plans, the 529s. But um, at, at the city and state level, um, there are a lot of a number of programs that have bank accounts for for kids or for newborns or uh, specific savings programs for for lower income kids, um, foster kids, um, a lot. You know, so savings programs, um, retirement program savings that are publicly sponsored, but for private sector workers. So savings, savings, savings tends to be this, the, the key theme. But I think that the point I'm getting at is that a lot of the kind of structural issues in terms of of low income families or the or an inability to move up uh, the the economic ladder with a lot of folks in in America is just that that money aspect that not having kind of the the structure underneath and the protection underneath to be able to make some extra, some other decisions and so to me you know all of these savings programs kind of help help with that foundation and help put people or families on a path to generational wealth. And it's really, I mean, thinking about it broadly like that, it's it's not something that I, I ever had sat down and kind of chewed on for a while, but it really is a, a role that, that state treasurers can and do play that I think is kind of under under advertised. Agreed. And some of it is, is the money piece of it. And some of it is just the fact that treasurers 
like local government CFOs, like school business officials, are in a position to really see across the entire organization. They can understand the way that agencies work together or maybe don't work together or understand the way that policy is made and implemented at a much broader uh, level, at a much higher purview than anyone else can. And that comes with it an interesting knowledge of the inner workings of things that you may not have if you're not dealing with the money side of it. So some of it's expertise on money and some of it is just a unique kind of expertise in the way that government functions. And both of those unique areas of expertise put state treasurers in a position to be able to make a very different kind of difference than the one that we might often think of. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod the treasurer from the state of Delaware, Treasurer Colleen Davis. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, welcome, treasurer. We're looking forward to this conversation. Something I think we'd like to ask everyone at the beginning, because it makes sense, is to just kind of get the lay of the land from you on what is Delaware's current financial position. It's actually, you know, pretty interesting because through the pandemic, we were we were certainly well positioned as far as our liquidity goes, but um, that's exactly why we saw federal funds coming into the state as there were a number of states that that didn't have the cash to ensure that they paid their bills. But just from, you know, one term span, we went from about a $4.3 billion general fund to uh, a 6.1, you know, 6.2 almost uh, billion dollar general fund. And some of that was related to some of the federal dollars that came in, but it's also been related to some of the returns on the investments. You know, as we see the the rising interest rate environment, it's it's actually been good for us in some ways. We we definitely have more money to circulate, which is a which is probably a positive thing. And I would say the other piece of that is also just that our population shifted a bit. You know, mid pandemic, we had a lot of folks who decided to make Delaware their permanent residence uh, for a period of time. And and that included folks that were retiring at a higher rate who sort of said, I'm not returning to this environment. I'm I'm finally making the decision to to jump um, into retirement. And then uh, and then other folks who were working remotely. So we've seen sort of a shift not only in our financing, but also in uh, in sort of our, our population as well, which has an impact on on our financing. It's yeah, retirement. I mean, people think of Florida as where all the all the retirees go, but Delaware is like half beaches, right? I mean, it's uh, it sounds like a wonderful thing. <laughs> yes, yes, and I think people are drawn to the stable tax structure as well, and I think some of that stability means that that you can you can get a good sense of of what your your costs are going to be uh, on that longer range. That's one of the ways that that our financial position has made that possible. I think the other piece of it is, you know, and one of the things that we're looking at is how do we ensure that we continue to keep the young folks that we have here that are growing and maybe growing a family or maybe maybe sort of entering the workforce um, right now. You know, how do we ensure that they remain here rather than look for other places that that aren't too far from here. And I think that's a big part of what we have to really be um, putting a concerted effort toward. Yeah, indeed. And speaking of investing in uh, young people, Delaware is a state that has seen a pretty good surge in enrollment in your 529 college savings plans. If you could talk a little bit about you know, what do you think accounts for that? And uh, what are some of the maybe longer term implications of that? 
the, yeah. So, so what accounts for that is my really phenomenal team. You know, one of the things that we do is uh, on a regular basis, sort of sit down and spitball ideas about what are ways that we can entice people. And, uh, and, we, and we sort of really massage those ideas. In other words, we put them through some uh, serious analytics before we decide to launch anything. And then on top of that, we also have a plans management board, which is made up of a mix of public and private folks that are, that are serving our state. And the great thing about that is it means we get perspective from a variety of different folks. Uh, we passed legislation this past year that provides a thousand dollar tax deduction for any taxpayer that is making a contribution to a 529. And so you may have a person, two adult household that are uh, each making a contribution to a beneficiary in a 529, and they can each take that tax deduction. That's really impactful. People are paying attention to those types of things. I think the other piece that has been really uh, impactful, one of the things that we saw in particular in our 529 plan is that we have a lot of beneficiaries that are aging out and we don't really see that big boom in the younger bracket, sort of zero to five. And so one of the things we did was we established first state, first steps. Uh, so Delaware is the first state to sign the constitution. And we sort of went off of our, our motto of being the first state. And essentially what we're trying to do is match anyone who makes a $100 contribution to a 529 plan that is for age zero to five. It has to be a new plan. You know, you can't sort of take your same grandchild and one grandparent you know, pays on, on one side and another grandparent pays on the other and you get a $200 match. It's up to $100 um, and it's really for zero to five. And that's where we've seen probably the most substantial growth has been in that age range. You know, one, a theme that we've heard from a couple different state treasurers is, is that the state treasurer's office is in a unique position to be able to try to make investments in you know, populations that sometimes don't get the same level of investment, but could also certainly benefit from a lot of that investment. And I know in your case, you've tried to expand uh, the use of your 529 plan for uh, kids in foster system and, and some of those other sort of harder to reach populations. What if you could tell us a little bit about how that's worked for you? Yeah. So um, so one, one of the things we do in order to promote the plan is we also do a partnership with our universities and and, and while that's great and it continues to promote higher education among our, our two large universities here in Delaware, we also know that a 529 can be used for trade school and technical school. And, and one of the things that we find is uh, particularly, you know, who's, that, who's part of that population that doesn't get served as well by universities or maybe even doesn't get served as well in general, uh, in education and training. And that's really foster youth. You know, far and wide, every state can, can attest to this, that foster youth have a higher incidence of poverty. Uh, so, so anyone who's come through the foster system, whether it's uh, as a toddler or, you know, as a senior in high school, they will just have a higher incidence rate of poverty. And we want to be part of sort of reversing that and making real opportunities. So one of the things that we did was established what's called Aspire 529. And this is where a student uh, who's ever touched the system can receive a stipend, no matter the, the exact program that they're in. Uh, it just has to be a technical school, a trade, uh, or college or university. 
and they'll get a stipend. And so we, we have a process where we verify that they have uh, been in foster care um, and things like that. So we're not just throwing money to, to anyone, but we're ensuring that we're getting funds to the most vulnerable. The nice thing about that program is that we hear from those adults. And one of the things that we do is we make it very flexible for them to spend these funds however is most appropriate for them. You know, I we had a, a mother who she was um, 20 years old and had a two-year-old at home and uh, was in school to become a phlebotomist. She ended up utilizing that stipend to help with childcare. Um, so it's it's been really awesome. You know, I like to refer to myself as the, the state aunt, you know, because a lot of times one of the things that you know to be true is that most kids have a network of adults that they can rely on. You know, often it's family, it's it's an aunt or it's a, a teacher or somebody that they can trust and sort of reach out to when they're when they're hitting some really tough times. And when you've lost family entirely and when you've been part of a system that's trying to help you but sometimes doesn't feel as though they're helpful which can be the foster system that's where you don't have that network of, of adults in your life um, so so it's been really rewarding not only to hear about how they're utilizing the funds but also just to be part of the process and to see that you know if we make an impact on on one young person's life it it, it has a real and true impact and so yeah I, I I, I've been really excited by that uh, and, and at the outcomes that we're getting. Those are such touching stories. It's really great that you get to, that you do hear back from some of these, these people. And, and to me, it really illustrates the, the value of having flexible funding. We've heard that term a lot in the pandemic, but this is a great example of how when you make the lease just long enough, it, it uh, allows people to do what they need to do. Absolutely. And the nice thing about this was we didn't have to go to the legislature to ask for this funding. We were essentially able to find it within the structure of the work that we're doing and um, set some funds aside in an endowment that will continue to be invested and hopefully be around in perpetuity. And so it is the, the beauty of flexible funding. It's also the beauty of flexible sourcing because in Delaware, we're a general fund state. So, so we don't often have those types of set-asides. I'd like to move on a, uh, to talk a little bit about expanding retirement savings for private sector work, workers. A number of states have launched these types of programs, state-sponsored retirement programs for private sector workers. Delaware has expanded its, its programs. So what are the, some of the challenges and, and opportunities that come along with that? So I want to say within the first few days of my entree into this office, I was excited to dig in and sort of look for, for an opportunity to do this. And I will say that um, the nice thing about Delaware is that we're so small. So it, it started with uh, a quick conversation with Tom Carper, our senior senator, who then put me in touch with uh, Mark Avery. Um, who's been working on this for a very long time. And Mark being the very knowledgeable and sort of, to be fair, sort of the, the steward that, that has been trying to champion this, he then helped to kind of open other doors and, and help us to sort of think about how we were going to draft this legislation, which I will say has become model legislation for other states. And, and really, we took some lessons learned from Illinois, Oregon, California, and I would say probably Maryland too. So in any case, it was nice to be part of a wider network of treasurers and states that were already looking at this. But essentially, 
the pandemic really made it very obvious, right, that, that we needed to do something. And part of the reason I say that is because under the CARES Act, um, one of the provisions, which again was very thoughtful and, and really fantastic for them to have included, was the ability for uh, folks to withdraw up to $100,000 from their 401k. The problem with that is you had to have had a 401k. And, uh, and unfortunately, we're talking about folks that were on the front lines that did not, by and large, have any uh, investment vehicle available to them. So when we started to really kind of dig in, we'd already done some foundational research uh, and analysis on who those folks might be. We knew it was going to be somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 Delaware residents. But mid-pandemic is when we started to dig in to try to, to try to get a scope of who is on the front lines, who, what, uh, what does this sort of bracket of income uh, look like for this particular sector. And it, it really was phenomenal because that was how we targeted our approach to every single lawmaker in Delaware. And, and I think that's what actually ended up helping us to make the case for it. And what it does is establishes, you know, as I said, a publicly offered retirement fund to any individual that's not offered something through their employer. If your employer already offers a 401k, we're not trying to sort of take that business. We want you to continue. It truly is a better vehicle to be part of a 401k because then your employer can take the tax benefits and also make contributions. All of that's really, really positive. By, by opening up the ability to a large swath of our population to save for their retirement, we're also establishing a vehicle that will help to create generational wealth and um, help to close that, that wealth gap. This is, in my mind, it's like a, a first step. And I, I'd love to see people across the U.S. offering it because uh, we saw for a long time it, it uh, really wasn't getting anywhere uh, on the federal side. So just sticking with that theme of uh, kind of stepping in and underserved parts of the private sector, and you've also done some work on uh, banking deserts. You can tell us a little bit about uh, how your office has, has tried to address that problem as well. It, it was essentially within a 20-mile radius or on a public service line. So if it was on a bus line were easily accessible. We're seeing the same type of contraction of um, over-the-counter services, and you know we we sort of experience this too. So I'm I'm also responsible for all of the contracts, the banking contracts, over-the-counter banking that that we do in the state. So all of our school districts, all of our offices, uh, whether it's at, with parks or with uh, our state police, they all need a bank that they can go to. And, um, and those contracts, we started to see in the RFP process that we wanted to, to be partnering with folks that had the ability to offer over-the-counter, face-to-face interactions. And there are pockets of our state where w- w- there truly are banking deserts. And some of that is because our banking partners or, or banks in general are sort of retracting the number of over-the-counter offices or locations that they're they're offering. And then I started to hear from people, from constituents who were telling me about how their grandmother or their cousin or you know a family member of some sort was cashing their checks at the local liquor store. And that if they happened to walk in right at the shift change for the person that was behind the counter, they were charged a different rate for cashing that check. 
So sometimes it was, I'm going to charge you 20 bucks today. I'm going to charge you 50 or they might take a look at that check and go, Hmm, I'm going to charge you a little more because this is a big check. And I thought this is unfortunate because it means that you don't have the power behind you to demand that you are interacting with a bank because that's the most appropriate way to, to interact, but also to demand that you're treated fairly no matter what time you walk in or no matter the size of the check. And, and so it really kind of stemmed from my, my sort of gut wrenching, like this is not fair. And so I partnered with a handful of community leaders and uh, as well as one of our legislators who actually was not uh, in office at the time. And and we reached out to one of the credit unions who placed their electronic tellers uh, in a couple of locations and has really kind of closed that and made banking available in those banking deserts in a real kind of feasible way. It was a big part of the things that I was trying to do early on, and it was a huge success to be able to do. And we continue to look for opportunities, so it's we're we're not done yet. Now, uh, Treasurer, I know that you your office doesn't handle unclaimed property directly, but we do know that you're involved in promoting and uh, supporting moving Delaware's unclaimed property activity to Money Match to the Money Match platform. Can you talk a little bit about that and how um, in your office's involvement? So, so across the entire state, we are moving toward a digital platform where you'll be able to log in and get your fishing license as well as your, um, you know, maybe pay your taxes. In developing that, we thought about unclaimed property and how that interaction could be streamlined. And that's where we, that's where we started to kind of come around the concept of money match. And yeah, I think the other piece of it is also just that on the federal level, we were hoping to get some clarity and support around unclaimed property. It's sort of still in the works. We started to kind of take that that sort of sideways journey of partnering with other states and um, looking to get a, a, a wider platform so that we can talk across um you know, from one state to another and, and streamline that return of funds. It's it's interesting because it sort of mimics or parallels what we're trying to do in the retirement savings for private sector workers platform, right? So for a long time, folks were trying to get this done at the federal level and just couldn't get an agreement. And so we started working on it individually at the state level. And, and when we started to see successes in that way, I think it's encouraging. It also means that we may be able to do this. It's a little more piecemeal. It's a little state by state, takes a bit longer, but it's an effective way to move in the right direction and to do the right thing. Treasurer Davis, you mentioned earlier Delaware being famous for, for the stability that surrounds its finances, stable tax structure, comparatively uh, wealthier state and, and so forth. And all of that has led to Delaware also famously being a, a AAA rated credit. Sort of those of us in the in the muni market kind of think of Delaware when they think of AAA rated states. So there's obviously a lot of benefits to that with respect to borrowing costs and the like. I guess the other side of that though is, are there any any challenges, any uh, anything about having that AAA credit that you think presents uh, any unique issues that you need to do with as treasurer? So, so I will just sort of st start by saying that as a AAA rated state, we have substantial benefits. And I, it was uh, 
late February in 2020, so just before we sort of shut down the entire state, that we were going to market with uh, an issuance. We were actually able to solidify our best bond rating in history at 1.51%, uh, which which really was was phenomenal. And we we refinanced uh, some you know some some bonds as well. And so having the ability to 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 get such phenomenal rates and to to take some some old issuances that had higher rates on them attached to them, it's it's really advantageous uh, to taxpayers. So so I would say that uh, many of the advantages outweigh disadvantages. But like anything, you know, I think it's important that we're sort of thinking about like, you know, what are those disadvantages? I think sometimes we're and and we actually did have some legislators who were interested in us issuing at a higher percentage of our general fund. So we have a standard of staying below a threshold and we try not to even get close to that threshold. And so legislators knowing that we have a AAA rating and that interest rates are extremely low, we're sort of keen on, in my mind, over issuing and taking a little too much advantage. Sure. So let's let's take that rating out for a spin, so to speak. Yes. What else can we do with this? But but you know but overall I mean I would say that's probably one of the the disadvantages and I think the other piece is that we have really really smart legislators who know what our statutes are and they're sort of going hey you're nowhere near that threshold so why are why are we not you know pushing the the boundaries here and and again because they're extremely bright they're also open to sort of the 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 reality check of like here's what this means we actually have to be able to to pay that that monthly payment probably the only disadvantage that i can think of at this moment <laughs> yeah, it just seems like you have to kind of cast about to to try and think of one but that that certainly is a legit one i can i can see why i mean just that that interest rate was so low i mean it, it, anyone who's refinanced in the last couple of years that's it they're done they're not doing that again because they're never going to see anything that low again is it kind of, is it the same way with uh, with the, the muni bond market or, or no? I mean, I think that um, it's hard to justify, right? Like if if we have such substantial liquidity, why do we need to in, invest in in our infrastructure when we could just pay cash? And I think the other challenge too is that we're seeing you know just a rising cost when it comes to all of these projects. So in certain ways, we have to be judicious about the projects that we're taking on and and what we're funding in the here and now, because it's tough. It's like you're trying to boil the ocean. You know what I mean? You're the, the volume of projects that are needing to get done in the next 20 year span may just be too much to launch all in year one. And so why not wait until we see some downward adjustment in the interest rate environment before we take on, you know, that next capital project. And I, I will say that's probably one of the biggest challenges for um, government as a whole is that inability to really look at that longer year projection. And some of that is because you are, you know, you're, you're dealing with folks that are on a cycle, right? So I'm in office for this period of time, and these are the things I want to get done. And, you know, you sometimes folks have blinders up and, and you can't really sort of go, let's just take a step back. Would it still be fantastic if you had these successes, but they're, they're not coming until year five or year 10? 
it really presents probably one of the largest challenges that we have when we're talking about how do we finance the things that we want to do. So to wrap up here, Treasurer Davis, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about how Delaware is using the federal funds from ARPA and and the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you kind of shed some light on, on what's going on in the state? When ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, was being drafted, a lot of our feedback was incorporated. And when I would call Tom Carper, Chris Coons, and, and even Lisa Blunt Rochester and, and say to them, we really should be thinking about how we can get funds down to the counties and sort of the people on the ground who have a better sense of what exactly is happening within their, their smaller footprint, they responded and, um, and was certainly appreciated. It, it's amazing how nimble we can be because folks often sort of talk about the frustration of how long it takes you know, to get things done. But when there's a crisis, it's, uh, it's really remarkable how we can all sort of drop the political agenda and work together to achieve something. Um, and, and when we're, I think, pragmatic and sort of solutions-based, uh, the thing that I was really excited by was the ability to, to be creative in finding a solution, but also be responsive and, and truly responsible. And I, I will just say, I love to talk to the private sector about what they both do, because I think that there are substantial funds in the green tax credits that a lot of private industry can take advantage of. And I'm really excited um, at the ways in which private industry has responded. And I think oftentimes when we're trying to move in an innovative way and trying to make substantial changes, particularly around climate change, it does require the investment of state, local, federal government, private sector investors, as well as corporations themselves. And, um, and, and it sort of builds off that, that sort of three-legged, more stable lines of funding. If you can do that, that's where we'll start to see substantial changes. So I'm really excited by the, the conversations that I've been having, particularly with innovators and um, financers and, and banks and, and that interest in getting into the green space and the renewable, sustainable resource space has been really exciting. Uh, I'll just say one of the projects that we have in, in Delaware is we, we do have a coal burning energy site that was supposed to be shut down by now and, um, and hasn't because we, we've been unable to get a renewable resource model in place. So we, we tried offshore wind, we, we tried some uh, micro sort of water turbines, all kind of in the same area. And this, this portion of our grid is sort of a vital portion of our grid. And the flip side of that is when I heard about an innovation um, out of one of the universities not far from us, I said, maybe you guys should all talk because um, what they're looking at is how, how can we maybe um, partner with this coal burning site that has had to remain open because we have no other source and how do we help them kind of clean up their production? And truly, it's been really, really rewarding uh, to participate and just put the right people around the room to, to have a conversation and just sort of see where that goes, because it means that 
while we have to have this coal burning site still open because it's necessary, it, it also means that there may be a net positive, not only for uh, the company themselves, but for our local residents, it'll bring down the cost for them and it will clean up the carbon production. We couldn't do it without the federal, w- without our federal partners sort of putting together that really phenomenal package. Yeah, it's a great example of the, the kinds of innovation that we've been talking about, certainly on this podcast and many others around the doors that have been opened by a, a lot of the new federal involvement, particularly in the IRA. So it's a really great illustration of some trends that we've been talking about. Delaware Treasurer Colleen Davis. Treasurer Davis, thanks so much for giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Treasurer Davis. There was a lot of information in in that interview that I hadn't, I think, fully appreciated before about the role that the state treasurer plays and can play, and and, and particularly with Delaware and its growth in in 529 programs. I think because of that, I was um, kind of attracted to this article that came out in the Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Post Gazette, and it's it's about a survey done by the College Savings Foundation's uh, survey of, of high school students. They surveyed about a thousand high school students. This is a DC-based uh, nonprofit. It's a trade group for 529 program managers. The story is titled "Shift in Perspective: High School Students Embrace College Post-Pandemic." Might be a little counter, I think, to what everyone was thinking a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pan- pandemic that um, colleges is too it's not worth it it's too expensive you're paying off loans until you're you know dead <laughs> i mean just and uh and so uh but it seems as if this survey points to the fact that there is is a shift back towards that more traditional four-year approach but with a twist the twist is to me that attitudes about four-year colleges are rebounding but at the same time community college is gaining more acceptance as a higher ed, ed alternative that that to me is is a, is a real shift and and it's it's something that has been going on for quite some time my my guess is that the the money that states have been putting toward a free or reduced tuition community colleges may have had something to may have something to do with that um, a couple of interesting stats here that the story cites I try not to throw too many numbers out here but the the survey found that the majority of, of responsibilities Bondies, about three quarters, said the traditional college experience will help create long-term friends and future contacts. You know, similar majority said that that it would be a valuable educational credential, so valuable, and that they they want to kind of that campus life experience, college clubs, sports, and, and other activities. So again, maybe very uh, not quite what we were thinking would happen to the college experience a couple of years ago. Another interesting uh, stat in terms of what what state policymakers and uh, maybe maybe interested in is that so one in five um, said that an aversion to debt is the reason that they're cha- changing their higher education choices. Of that, about thirty three percent, so one third said they are choosing a state school. Um, another just under a third said they are going to community college. And then overall, this survey found that forty percent plan on entering public colleges and 19%, so about one in five, will go to community colleges and, and a smaller percent than that is planning on, on attending a private school. And those are, are students who have, who have committed to, to an institute, to a college. Um, so huge shift in my mind towards kind of more practical, more affordable education. I mean, makes sense. 
But that, that to me is the takeaway here. The thing that stood out to, in this story is that public colleges have, have the market share on, on students overall. But really what this points to is that maybe the pandemic highlighted the fact that public colleges and universities, and in particular community colleges, can provide that value that, that people are, are looking for. So that is, I think that, that's what interested me about this, about this story. And Justin, as you, as you went over, what, what sort of things stood out to you? Yeah, everything you mentioned uh, certainly stood out. I think it's a great summary of some really interesting trends and some really important information to to put out there. When I, it's interesting when I was looking at this, I sort of feel, always filtered it through what I think has been for most of us in in state and local budgeting, kind of the experience with higher education as of late, which is the the trend over the last. 20 or 30 years of really disinvestment in public higher education by states. Statistically and just empirically, we know that to be the case. In many states, it's gone from uh, state universities, particularly the flagship state university being uh, funded at, or even in some cases, greater than 50% of its total operating costs by the state. Now, in many states, that that number is closer to like 10% or even less in some cases, including at some really high profile flagship institutions. That's just been the trend. There's just been a disinvestment um, and and just a a shifting of priorities on the part of state legislators. It's always been interesting, though, when you look at that, because there's been a tendency to really not think of the entire state, you know, post high school education system as a system. It's separate components. There's the community college component that may or may not coordinate with the four year college component, which may or may not coordinate with the vocational and technical training programs. And as you were saying, it seems like post pandemic, that's one of the things that has happened is there's been a recognition of the value in having a statewide perspective on this. We've actually seen in a few cases, some states reinstate some of those statewide coordinating bodies for higher education that had really been either left to atrophy or had had been done away with altogether. And having that that ability to look across the entire system and think about where investments need to go is really important. The reality is it's probably not the sort of zero-sum game that it's often been portrayed as where you do either a four-year college or a community college, or the state should invest in either of the two. Realities, you probably need a little bit of all of the above, maybe more public investment in some than in other. And that these trends that we're seeing from, from young people in these kinds of survey results, I think just back that up. The state priorities can be a little more nuanced, a little more complicated than they've been so far. And we ought to think about the investment in, in that same kind of nuanced and complex term. So it's a really interesting set of findings, and I think it squares with the way that we're seeing state budgeting and the actual flow of the public money shift a little bit in a post-pandemic world. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtoby, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Aerial Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance, for public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry, 
For a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space, discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.